Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. As always, I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and along with my co-host, Nachi Gupta, we'll be taking you through the June 2017 issue, Dental Emergencies, Management Strategies that Improve Outcomes. This month's issue is authored by Dr. Ryan Padigo, who is the Director of Undergraduate Medical Education at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the David Gaffin School of Medicine. Dr. Padigo reviewed articles published in English over the last five years and found over 700 articles related to this topic. He also reviewed recommendations from the International Association for Dental Traumatology and the Cochrane Database. And the peer reviewers for this article were Dr. Boyd Burns, who's the Kaiser Foundation Chair in Emergency Medicine at the University of Oklahoma School of Community Medicine, and Dr. Marlena Norris, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Jeff, let's set the scene with some case presentations. Your first patient of the shift is a 20-year-old man who is involved in an altercation. On physical exam, you note that he's missing two teeth and has chipped another. EMS found one tooth at the scene and stored it in milk. You wonder, was milk the best storage medium? Do I need to worry about the missing tooth or other injuries? How do I replant a tooth? Does a chipped tooth need any specific interventions? As you ponder these questions, your next patient arrives. She's an 18-year-old woman complaining of severe, dull pain three days after wisdom tooth removal. Upon inspection, the socket that previously held her right mandibular third molar is devoid of any blood clot. You recognize this as dry socket or alveolar osteitis, but think, what can I even do about this? Later that day, you see yet another patient with a dental complaint, a 60-year-old homeless man with a fever, malaise, and severe gingival pain and bleeding. On exam, he has a temperature of 38.1 and has submandibular lymphadenopathy, as well as gingiva that are friable with exudates and blunted papillae. You're dumbfounded at what this represents and how to treat it, and you ask yourself, why didn't I read that dental emergencies article that just arrived in the mail? Studies have shown that dental emergencies are a topic that ER physicians often don't feel comfortable with. After listening to this episode, we hope to really improve your knowledge of evidence-based dental recommendations and improve your practice. And just as we did last month, we're going to keep the sound effects to cue you in when we'll be specifically addressing the answers to the CME question, thanks to feedback from our listeners. So make sure to listen carefully and then head over to the website to earn your much-deserved credit. All right, so let's dive into this issue. Dental visits to the ED are on the rise. From the year 2000 until 2010, dental visits to the ED nearly doubled, totaling 2.18 million visits in 2012. That's not insignificant. Dental emergencies also cover a broad range of pathology, from benign pain to fractures to cancer, and in the worst case, life-threatening infection or airway compromise. But before we get into the pathology, let's start with some basic anatomy. In their first years, humans have 20 primary or deciduous teeth. Most infants develop their first teeth at approximately six months of age, with a complete set present by age three. These are later replaced by 32 permanent or secondary teeth, with the transition starting at about age five or six. And teeth are numbered from 1 to 32, starting with the patient's top right. From the most posterior molar in the maxilla, you wrap around to the top left and then drop down to the mandible and wrap back around to the right. Just like reading a book, you start left to right. It's also clockwise if you're facing the patient. Alternatively, you can simply name the tooth. This is often easier as missing teeth and varying stages of tooth development complicate the whole counting process. In each quadrant, you have a central incisor, lateral incisor, one canine, two premolars, and three molars, which include the wisdom teeth. So in total, there are eight incisors, four canines, eight premolars, and 12 molars. Let's go a bit deeper and discuss the anatomy of the actual tooth. Each tooth has three layers. From the outside to the inside, there's the enamel, the dentin, and then the pulp. 
Below the gingiva, at the root of the tooth, the enamel is replaced by cementum, which, with the help of the periodontal ligament, allows it to attach to the alveolar bone. The cementum, periodontal ligament, and alveolar bone together are called the attachment apparatus. The attachment apparatus combined with the local gingiva make up the periodontium. That's certainly a mouthful and can be tough to visualize. It's reviewed pictorially in figure three of this month's issue, so make sure to check that out. There are also a few other dental-specific anatomic terms we need to define before moving on. The upper teeth are often referred to as the maxillary teeth, while the lower teeth are referred to as the mandibular teeth. The facial, labial, or buccal surface faces outwards, whereas the palatal or lingual surface faces the oral cavity. The mesial surface faces the midline. The distal surface faces the mandibular ramus. The interproximal surface is the area where one flosses. And lastly, apical refers to the direction towards the root of the tooth, and coronal refers to the direction towards the crown. Wow, that's a lot to take in. So just like the recent maxillofacial trauma episode, this would be another good one to listen to with the print issue at your side. Of course, don't do that if you're driving. Great point. Next, let's move on to the pathophysiology. Again, we're going to be pretty terminology heavy here, but it's important to speak the language so you can communicate effectively with both your consultants and your patients. So dental trauma comes in several forms, a concussion, subluxation, luxation, avulsion, or a fracture. Concussions are the most minor, referring to any dental pain to percussion. Slightly more severe is the subluxation, which refers to a tooth that is mobile but in the correct anatomic position. Finally, a luxation refers to a tooth that's mobile and no longer in the correct anatomic position, whereas an avulsed tooth has been fully removed from the socket. Luxation can further be subclassified as extrusive, intrusive, or lateral. Extrusive luxation refers to a tooth that has been partially moved out of the socket. Intrusive is when the tooth is forced inward into the socket. And lateral luxation is when the tooth is luxated in a different direction that is neither extrusive nor intrusive. And next up, we have fractures. Dental fractures are classified by the Ellis classification system. An Ellis 1 fracture involves the enamel only. Ellis 2 fractures involve the enamel and the dentin. And Ellis 3 fractures involve the enamel, dentin, and pulp. Despite this well-known classification system, it's often easier to simply describe the depth of the fracture. And don't forget about the alveolar ridge fracture. This should be considered when a segment of teeth is displaced. Intimately related to dento-alveolar trauma are the maxillofacial injuries. We discussed these extensively in episode 3, so we won't go too much into that here. One injury we didn't discuss, though, that's still appropriate for this episode is a temporomandibular joint dislocation. This occurs when the condyle translates too far anteriorly and becomes locked. We'll talk about specific reduction techniques in a bit. So that wraps up the traumatic dental emergencies. Let's talk atraumatic dental emergencies. By far the most common diagnosis for dental pain is pulpitis due to dental caries. Patients often complain of temperature sensitivity and pain with pressure of the tooth. This occurs in those with poor dental hygiene as the bacteria travels via the demineralized enamel to the exposed dentin leading to inflammation of the pulp. If caught early, pulpitis can be reversible, but if not treated, it can lead to necrosis of the pulp and pain with any stimulus of the tooth. Pathology is not limited to the teeth. The gingiva and the periodontium are also common sites for inflammation. Chronic periodontal inflammation can lead to loosening or loss of teeth over time. In the most severe form, especially in those that are immunocompromised, bacteria can invade the periodontium, leading to acute necrotizing ulcerative gingivitis, or trench mouth. Trench mouth is usually polymicrobial in nature and often includes fusobacterium and spirochetes. If it's not treated appropriately, this can spread to the adjacent oral mucosa, causing necrotizing stomatitis and then noma, which is also known as cancrum oris, or fusospirochetal gangrene, which can be fatal. Although uncommon, these are dramatic presentations with high mortality, so it's not something to be taken lightly. Oh, and there's one more condition worth discussing here. That's pericoronitis. This occurs as the tooth erupts through the gingiva, leading to a potential space for trapped bacteria. 
This can cause pain and infection and often occurs with wisdom tooth eruption. It's also worth mentioning two procedure-related complaints. The first is alveolar osteitis or dry socket. Occurring three to four days after a tooth extraction, alveolar osteitis occurs when the clot protecting the empty socket is dislodged, leading to pain and inflammation. Pain also occurs after root canals. This may be due to residual gas bubbles that get trapped in the cavity. This causes an unpleasant neuropathic pain. All right, so what happens if you don't address these dental emergencies appropriately? Your patient can end up with odontogenic abscesses and even deep neck infections. In children, untreated oropharyngeal infections can lead to either peritonsillar abscesses, PTAs, or retropharyngeal abscesses, RPAs. Acute tonsillitis can lead to a PTA, whereas retropharyngeal lymphadenopathy can lead to an RPA. Remember that RPAs are rare after age 4, as the retropharyngeal nodes atrophy. In adults, dental infections are a common precipitating factor for abscesses and deep neck infections. On the mild end of the spectrum, irreversible pulpitis leads to periapical abscess. On the more severe end, the local disease can spread to one of the secondary spaces of the oral cavity and the neck. In the case of mandibular odontogenic infections, these spaces include the submental, sublingual, and submandibular spaces. The feared Ludwig's angina occurs when all three spaces are infected. In the case of maxillary odontogenic infections, untreated disease can lead to cavernous sinus thrombosis, which carries significant morbidity and mortality. Along similar lines, pharyngitis or tonsillitis can lead to septic thrombophobitis of the internal jugular vein or Lemierre syndrome. This is commonly due to Fusobacterium necroform, which we also mentioned a minute ago. As if septic thrombophobitis wasn't bad enough, in one study of just over 100 people, 30% went on to develop septic strokes, 22% developed septic arthritis or osteomyelitis, and 22% developed septic pulmonary emboli. That's incredibly bad. Although children don't typically have specific risk factors for developing these deep space neck infections, adults do. Diabetic patients are almost 20% more likely than non-diabetics to have abscess formation following an odontogenic infection. They also tend to have longer hospital stays for dental infections, almost double their non-diabetic counterparts. In addition, they tend to have increased complication and intubation rates. HIV is another important risk factor, and the risk may still be increased even if they are on antiretroviral therapy. In one retrospective study of almost 10,000 patients, HIV patients, even with free access to heart, had a relative risk of two for deep neck infections. Before getting into patient care, let's talk about the differential. Obviously, all of the pathology we just reviewed is on the differential, but there are also a few non-odontogenic causes of pain to consider. For example, trigeminal neuralgia can present with dental pain, and temporal arteritis can present with jaw claudication. Many viral infections like HSV and mumps can present with orofacial pain as well. And don't forget that pain may be referred from primary sinus infections. As always, a careful history and physical exam are a must. Table 1 on page 7 of this issue covers the differential far more extensively, so be sure to look there also. All right, so let's talk about pre-hospital care. The crux of pre-hospital care focuses on airway protection. Patients should be treated in an upright position with suction readily available if there's concern for secretions. Hemorrhages should be controlled with direct pressure. An avulsed permanent tooth can be replanted at the scene after a gentle rinse with saline. For those that can't be immediately replanted, the tooth can be transported with the patient to the hospital. In all cases, EMS personnel should take care to only handle the tooth by the crown, as the periodontal ligament cells on the root can be easily injured. Oh, and I forgot to mention, an avulsed primary tooth should never be replanted. This begs the obvious question, how do you store the tooth prior to replanting it? Great question. Ideally, teeth should be stored in either Hanks Balance Salt Solution, Oral Rehydration Solution, or in milk. They should not be stored under the patient's tongue or in saliva unless no better solution is available. This is truly an evidence-based recommendation based on a 2013 lit review. Got it. Either Hanks, Oral Rehydration Solution, or milk. 
And if none of these are an option, saliva or under the patient's tongue, if not an aspiration risk. Exactly. If the tooth is stored dry, the periodontal ligament cells are viable for less than an hour. If stored in milk, they can be viable for up to three to eight hours. And if stored in Hanks or rehydration solution, they may be viable for up to 12 to 24 hours. All right. So now the patient arrives in the ED and you begin your history and physical. As always, it's ABCs first. That's obvious, but let's talk dental-specific history and physical now. In the case of dental trauma, if there are avulsed permanent teeth, make sure to assess how long ago the incident occurred and in what medium the tooth or teeth were stored, as this plays an important role in replantation. Similarly, if teeth are missing, they should be accounted for. Was the tooth aspirated or swallowed? Are there tooth fragments and any lacerations? Were teeth lost to the accident scene? You should also note if they have any history of a bleeding disorder if they're on any anticoagulants. And don't forget about updating their tetanus vaccination per the usual protocols. And with atraumatic dental complaints, start with the obvious questions. Like, did you have any recent dental work? Do you have a history of dental disease? Are you a diabetic? Are you immunocompromised from HIV, chronic steroid use, or chemotherapy? Additionally, you should also investigate the less obvious causes for dental disease, like a medication list, as some medications like phenytoin and diltiazem can cause gingival overgrowth. Moving on to the physical, if available and the patient's able, the patient should be examined in a chair sitting upright. The physical begins as you enter the room, making sure to note whether the patient is handling his or her secretions and phonating normally. You should take note of any facial asymmetry, which in the appropriate setting should raise your suspicion for a deep space infection. Once at the bedside, or should I say chair side, each tooth should be inspected for fractures, caries, or gross malalignment. Percuss the teeth looking for tenderness to assess for a periapical abscess. Palpate the teeth for mobility to assess for possible subluxation. Visualize the teeth looking for the yellow-brown color of exposed dentin or the pinkish hue or possibly visible blood of exposed pulp. Next, move on to the gingiva. Inspected for erythema, edema, and hypertrophy. Although a rare entity, you don't want to miss the triad of findings for necrotizing periodontal disease, which include papillary necrosis, gingival bleeding, and pain or tenderness. After inspecting the remainder of the oral mucosa, move to the external facial structures, palpating for induration, fluctuation, or regional lymphadenopathy. Good point, but a word of caution. In one study involving attending-level surgeons, the clinical exam was found to have a 63% accuracy for identifying a drainable collection. Make sure to use imaging liberally, and we'll discuss that more in a bit. Assess the jaw through its full range of motion, looking for trismus and signs of dislocation. The tongue blade test can also be used to assess for mandibular fractures. Wait, are we talking about the same tongue blade test that we discussed in episode 3 in the maxillofacial trauma episode? The one that tests the ability to crack a tongue blade when it's twisted between closed molars? That's right. And as a reminder, one perspective trial demonstrated an impressive 95% sensitivity and a negative predictive value of 92%, meaning this test has real potential as a screening tool. And as we mentioned in episode 3, the specificity really isn't that great. So the tongue blade test can be used to help rule out, not rule in, mandibular fractures. That's right. And a bit more on the kids. The pediatric population may be more difficult to examine. Often, this may involve sedation. If required, Dr. Badigo recommends either an oral dose of 0.5 mg per kilogram of bendazolam, up to 10 mg, with an additional half of the original dose given again if needed. As an alternative, intranasal midazolam may also be used at a dose of 0.3 mg per kilogram. Dosing intranasally is limited by the sheer quantity that the nearest can tolerate. And as an additional caveat, always make sure your patients have the appropriate mental status for such exams. The masseter is an incredibly powerful muscle. You don't want your fingers in the wrong place at the wrong time. All right, let's talk imaging. Localized periodontal disease rarely requires dedicated imaging. However, if there's concern for an aspirated tooth, a chest x-ray should be obtained. And as we discussed in the maxillofacial trauma episode, although x-rays, specifically a panoramic x-ray, provide adequate visualization, 
CT scans are often easier to perform and are preferred due to decreased interpretation error. With suspicion for a deep space neck infection, CTs with contrast are a must. Not surprisingly, lab studies are of limited utility. Coagulation studies like the PT and PTT may be useful in those on vitamin K antagonists or with specific novel anticoagulants, but they should not be routinely checked in all patients. Okay, now that the patient has been examined and imaged, let's move on to treatment, starting with analgesia. NSAIDs given at scheduled times rather than as needed is the hallmark of analgesia for dental pain. Opiates are rarely indicated, and NSAIDs have been shown to be superior in multiple studies explicitly addressing dental pain. For temporary relief, an orofacial nerve block could also be considered. Supraperiosteal, inferior alveolar, mental, and infraorbital nerve blocks are excellent tools to add to your already extensive ED physician armamentarium. Remember that local anesthesia can be injected superficially over the site also, but you may be risking propagation of bacteria spread to uninfected regions. In the worst case, this seeding can lead to ocular infection, retropharyngeal abscesses, Ludwig angina, or even systemic sepsis. And the preparation for all nerve blocks is the same. First, of course, familiarize yourself with the anatomy and identify the landmarks, then dry the area. Next, anesthetize topically with benzocaine spray, lidocaine gel, or nebulized lidocaine. Once the topical or nebulized anesthesia has taken effect, inject a small amount of local anesthesia, like 2 mLs of 1% or 2% Lido, or 0.5% bupivacaine. Massaging the injected area can assist in permeating the tissue planes. In general, an intraoral block is considered superior to an extraoral block. Those are great general guidelines for orofacial nerve blocks. Let's go through some more details for each block for our listeners, though. Sure. First up is the supraperiosteal nerve block. The supraperiosteal nerve block provides excellent anesthesia to a single tooth and is most effective in the maxillary teeth. With the needle bevel towards the tooth, the mucobuccal fold is pierced and 1-2 to two mLs of the local anesthetic is deposited. Pretty straightforward. For mandibular teeth or multiple regions of the mandible, an inferior alveolar nerve block is ideal, as it anesthetizes the entire ipsilateral mandible, lower lip, and chin. This block is a bit more difficult to perform, though. First, place the thumb of the hand, opposite the one that will be injecting, inside the mouth as far posterior along the intraoral mandible as possible, to the point where you can palpate the coronoid notch. Approach with the needle from the contralateral side, with the barrel of the syringe between the first and second premolar. Insert the needle one centimeter above the occlusive surface of the molars. You should first contact bone, then withdraw slightly, aspirate, and inject your anesthetic. To anesthetize the ipsilateral lower lip and chin, you should consider a mental nerve block. Approach the mental foramen intraorally at a 45-degree angle and infiltrate adjacent to the mental foramen, which is usually located just medial to the pupil of the eye when the patient has a forward gaze. Remember that the inferior alveolar nerve block just discussed will also block the mental nerves, as the mental nerve is a continuation of the inferior alveolar nerve after it courses through the mental foramen. An infraorbital nerve block is preferred for upper lip lacerations. First locate the infraorbital foramen, which is in line with the pupil of the patient with a forward gaze, immediately under the infraorbital ridge. Insert the needle intraorally, parallel to and at the level of the second maxillary premolar. Advance at 2.5 centimeters and inject adjacent to the foramen. These descriptions are meant to give you a rough idea, but they certainly don't do justice to the helpful images in this month's issue, which outline the region of anesthesia as well as exhibit the site of injection, so make sure to flip back over to the print edition. The next topic is probably the most widely debated, so pay particular attention to the evidence-based recommendations here. The topic, if you couldn't guess, is antibiotics. Based on a 2016 Cochrane review, there's no evidence that antibiotics are beneficial in the treatment of pulpitis, though they do note that additional research is needed. In patients with simple gingival disease, antibiotics offer no benefit over routine oral hygiene. 
Patients with pericoronitis should be treated with chlorhexidine rinses. Interestingly, in one RTC, green tea, that's green tea, was just as effective. Green tea? I didn't see that coming. Anyway, in cases of necrotizing periodontal disease, oral antibiotics are a must, in addition to chlorhexidine rinses and prompt dental referral for debridement. Severe pericoronitis also warrants oral antibiotics, as well as referral for definitive management. Although there's limited data, in cases of uncomplicated periapical abscesses without systemic symptoms, all that's needed is a little IND. Antibiotics are necessary in those that are immunocompromised or with systemic symptoms, along with prompt dental referral in one to three days. And up to this point, we've been loosely using the term antibiotic without being specific. Recommended agents include penicillin VK or amoxicillin clavulinate. In those with a penicillin allergy, clindamycin could be considered. And in the immunocompromised or those with a suspected candida infection, nystatin, swish, and spit should be used. And for facial cellulitis thought to be of dental origin, consider broad-spectrum coverage. A 2011 study showed that on average, at least two organisms were cultured with anaerobes present more than 50% of the time. Deep neck infections also require broad-spectrum coverage. In the immunocompetent patient, consider combined therapy with intravenous ampicillin sulbactam and vancomycin. And for broader coverage for an immunocompromised patient, consider intravenous meropenem and vancomycin to ensure adequate pseudomonal and ESBL-producing bacteria are covered. That's a lot to remember for sure. The next topic to discuss is the management of local tooth trauma. If grossly mobile, sublux teeth can be considered for splinting. That being said, a soft diet, chlorhexidine rinses, and dental referral are usually all that's needed. Teeth that have been luxated should be splinted in anatomic position with a dental splint. And for those of you who don't see a ton of dental trauma, dental splinting is not that difficult, so don't be intimidated. First, you completely dry the teeth with gauze rolls on the mucobuckle fold using a nasal cannula to air dry the area. Next, you mix a resin and a catalyst paste and apply it to the facial side of the tooth, spanning one to two teeth in either direction. If a permanent tooth is evulsed and is thought to be viable based on the time and storage medium, replantation should be considered. To accomplish this, first block the area with regional anesthesia. Next, irrigate the socket. Then, handling the tooth by the crown only, rinse debris with saline and implant the tooth in place. Lastly, apply dental splint. After replantation, all patients should be started on oral doxycycline. Chlorhexidine rinses and gentle brushing after a soft diet meals are encouraged. And don't forget, of course, about the appropriate dental or oral surgery follow-up. Let's talk about treatment for dental fractures next. For simple LS1 fractures, file the sharp edges with an emery board for comfort. For LS2 fractures, and again, those are the ones with the exposed yellow hue of the dentin, cover the exposed dentin with a calcium hydroxide paste as a temporary cover and provide dental referral follow-up within 24 hours. LS3 fractures, or those with the exposed pinkish pulp, those need dental consultation in the ED. Small alveolar ridge fractures can be splinted in the ED, but larger, more severe fractures require subspecialist consultation. Alveolar osteitis, that's the dry socket that can be found after clot dissolution three to four days after tooth extraction. Treatment for that should start with pain control with NSAIDs and opioids or nerve block if needed. The socket can be gently irrigated with saline, but should not be curetted. Exposing more bone will worsen the condition. Prompt follow-up is needed, ideally with the individual who performed the initial extraction. The only condition left for us to discuss today is mandibular dislocation. There are two techniques to mention. The first approach is the traditional intraoral reduction. This often requires procedural sedation due to masseteric spasm. With appropriate analgesia and sedation as needed, first wrap your thumbs in gauze with a tongue depressor taped to either side for protection. Next, facing the patient, place your thumbs on the inferior molars and apply downwards and backwards pressure. 
In cases where more force is needed, the unified hands technique can be tried in which both of your thumbs are used to reduce one side of the mandible at a time. The hands-free, quote, syringe technique is an easy alternative that may be tried. To do this, place a 5 or 10 milliliter syringe between the posterior molars. Have the patient bite down and roll the syringe back and forth. In one study of 31 patients, 30 were successfully reduced with this method. And I'm also one for one so far, so let's make it 31 of 32. All right, in terms of the disposition of patients with dental alveolar disease, the vast majority will be discharged home. Admission should be considered for those with multi-system trauma, those with potential for airway compromise, and those who have too much trismus to be able to eat. Additionally, those who are immunocompromised with severe odontogenic infections, deep space infections, and facial cellulitis should be admitted for IV antibiotics and possible surgical management. So let's return to our clinical case correlates, and then we'll close out the episode with a quick summary. For the 20-year-old man with an avulsion of his right maxillary and central and lateral incisors, you were able to replant the central incisor that was stored properly in milk. A chest x-ray demonstrated that the unaccounted for lateral incisor was in his stomach. You splinted and replanted the central incisor and gave him a prescription for doxycycline, a soft diet, and chlorhexidine rinses, and advised him to see his dentist the next day. The chipped tooth involved only the enamel, so you filed it down for comfort. You gave the 18-year-old woman with alveolar osteitis an inferior alveolar nerve block with pupivacaine 0.5% to treat her severe pain. You then packed the socket with eugenol-soaked gauze and discharged her on NSAIDs with follow-up the next day with her surgeon. For your third patient, the 6-year-old homeless man with a fever and gingival pain, you found on exam that he had necrotizing ulcerative gingival stomatitis. He had a leukocytosis and a bandemia. You started him on IV antibiotics and oral chlorhexidine washes. Before ending this episode, let's summarize some key points. Primary teeth should not be replanted. All teeth need to be accounted for. Explore local wounds and consider a chest x-ray in those with risk of aspiration. Avulsed teeth should be stored in Hanks medium, oral rehydration solution, or less ideally in milk. They should be handled by the crown only. LS2 fractures with exposed dentin can be covered with calcium hydroxide and discharged with 24-hour dental follow-up. LS3 fractures with exposed pulp require ED consultation. Immunocompromised patients with HIV or diabetes are at a greater risk for deep neck infections and subsequent complications. Image liberally as neck infections and abscesses are often difficult to evaluate with just the physical. Consider nerve blocks for dental pain and also to aid facial laceration repair. And lastly, make sure your ED has all the appropriate equipment to handle the basic dental emergencies. A sample list can be found in Table 4 on page 17. So that wraps up Amplify episode number 5. And as always, don't forget to earn your CME credit by answering the questions which you're now more than prepared to tackle. Either follow the QR code at the end of this issue or head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash E0617. Hopefully, we'll see many of you in a few weeks at the Clinical Decision-Making Conference in Ponte Vitra Beach. Jeff and I will both be there, along with a number of top faculty giving excellent talks. That's right, and for those of you who haven't yet registered, it's not too late. Head over to www.clinicaldecisionmaking.com for more information. 